I certainly recognize that the things I've been sharing with you this week and what I will continue to share with you are not something, it's not something new. It's, it's, it's basic and it's fundamental. Uh, what can be more basic and fundamental than the doctrine of our salvation? Or what, what is more important than the doctrine of, of our salvation? Especially when, when, we, when death begins to knock at our door. I, uh, but I, my, my, in my own grapple for spiritual reality from time to time, I find that I'm, it's not that I, I find new things about God and the things of God, but in my own grapple for spiritual reality, it's when I come back to the fundamental issues of the Christian life that, uh, that I am revived, that I am spiritually renewed. And I, I trust that that will be your experience here as we continue to gather together. I, uh, I wonder again how, how you felt last night after I attempted to sort of pound hard at, on the main point of my message, that, that all are under sin. Uh, I want you to know that I did so deliberately because the Holy Spirit is very succinct about this matter in, in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 when it says, All are under sin. You see, unless we wrestle deeply with the issue, not only of our sins, but, of, but with our sinfulness, we will end up with a mere intellectual, at best a philosophical concept and precept of our redemption in Christ. Unless we're confronted with a deep sense of our sinfulness, we will experience repentance only on a superficial level. People's receptivity of the gospel is related to their perception of their need of the gospel. And that, uh, you know, Paul seemed to understand this dynamic very well. And that's uh, why he prefaces the doctrine of salvation here in the book of Romans with this extensive exposition of the sinfulness of man. I understand that when a diamond merchant wants to enhance the beauty of a diamond, he throws down a black cloth on top of the sales counter, lays a diamond on it, snaps on a bright overhead light, and there is, and, and there is something um, about the black cloth that enhances the, the exquisite beauty of a diamond. Well, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul, in a very real sense, laid down the black cloth. And now he's going to, to uh, uh, expound to us in, in, the, in the next uh, number of chapters uh, the exquisite the beauty of, uh, of the doctrine of our salvation. And, and I just, I really desire that, that we, we see that and we, we get it because that's so important for us as we live in a fallen world, the fallen world that we live in. Well, tonight, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm going to speak to you about on the subject of God having set forth a propitiation. And that is found in Romans chapter 3 and verses 24 and 25. And of course, as you know, that's part of a, a larger text. And I, I trust that you have taken the, the freedom and the liberty to read the larger text, beginning especially at verse 21 and all the way through to the end of the chapter. So the stage has been set for the setting forth of the doctrine of salvation. The gospel has been introduced, as we noticed in, in the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1. The black cloth has been laid down, uh, and, uh, and, and so now Paul uh, begins to expound to us the doctrine of salvation. And, and what we have in verses 19 and 20, the last couple verses of, uh, of last night's text, uh, where it says, but now we know that whatsoever things, whatsoever the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Those are the last two verses of, of uh, last night's text. Uh, but here, 
the, the purpose of the law is briefly uh, stated for us here in these two verses. It says that every mouth may be stopped. That's verse 19. You see, after, what, after the, the indictment that Paul brought against all sinful men, you know, no one can rightly say, but I am an exception. <laughs> I've done the best I could, and, I, and so I'm an exception. But so Paul is saying in a very real way here that there is no appeal of the divine verdict. There's no plea bargaining here. No defense can be made in reality. We can, we can only confess with Job in Job 44 when he said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And so the three purposes of the law, as Paul gives it here, is sort of larger than this in, in Romans chapter 7, but that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be guilty before God, and, and so that, and by the, by the law is the knowledge of sin, and that is especially is going to be enlarged upon in Romans chapter 7, and we'll be looking at that. Uh, Sunday morning. There are two clarifying statements made uh, that are very important to us in verses 19 and 20, which I read here. Uh, And those two clarifying statements are that what things soever the law says, it says to them that are under the law. We notice that all men are under sin. Paul said that. In verse 9, here he says that uh, whatsoever the law says, it says to them who are now under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? Well, uh, there are a number of things that uh, uh, we could uh, uh, explore here in relation to that. But it seems to me that at least I understand this, that as soon as one breaks the law, you come under the law. Under under the, the law means to come under its jurisdiction uh, and and to come under the condemnation of the law because of a broken uh, a broken law and so we come under the law. Uh, I remember very well several several years ago uh, I was preaching in a church in in, in Oklahoma and uh, we were on our way home on Monday morning. And we got on the plane in Oklahoma City, and we're going to fly to Dallas International Airport here in Washington, D.C. And as Ed and I got into the, on the plane and we found our seats, uh, there were three seats uh, on each side of the aisle. And, and uh, on, on the, in the window seat was uh, a, a middle-aged man. Uh, and uh, so we sat down there. I sat beside him. And, and uh, as we belted in and got ready to go, we began talking and and uh, sort of learning to uh, know who, who, who we are and who he is. And, and, uh, and, and I discovered that he was a, a Jewish man. And, um, and so uh, uh, he, he was uh, someone who had taught on the university level and that kind of thing. And, but uh, before long, I, I said, so, uh, so what do you make of your Messiah? And just like that, he came back to me and said, you mean that bastard son of Mary? And I said, whoa. I mean, I didn't say it out loud, but, <laughs> you know, it, it sort of set me back on my heels for a bit. And, and so we began to talk, and, 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 and we talked for three solid hours, all the way from Oklahoma City to Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, I began to push him, and, uh, I, and he was very free to tell, tell us about himself, to tell me about himself. Uh, he, he was very free to say that, that he was an adulterer and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I began to push him and I, I said, so what do you do with the Ten Commandments? Well, that's, you know, no, no, that's not, that, that, that's just, you know, he just sort of pushed it off. And, and, uh, and I said, so what do you do with uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and in relation to the Messiah? And, and uh, you know, he didn't want to hear about it. And I kept pushing him, and I kept pushing him. I said, you know, 
don't. You need to go back and read your own scriptures. You're, you're a Jewish. You, you're a son of Abraham. You need to go back and read your own scriptures. And I, I pointed him to Deuteronomy chapter 20, where it talks about the Ten Commandments. And I, I quoted some of the Ten Commandments, I guess, to him. And, uh, but he, he just wanted to, to sort of uh, ignore that. And, and I kept, we, we talked all the way from Oklahoma City, like I said, to Washington, D.C., and uh, I kept pushing him that he, he, he really needs to go back and, and, and read his own scriptures from the Old Testament. And I said, you need to read Deuteronomy chapter 20. You need to read Isaiah chapter 53. And the interesting thing is that we landed in Washington, D.C. We, we uh, unbelted and got up to leave the plane. And, and he said, well... You know, I, at least I, I understand one thing. I need to go and read my own scriptures. <laughs> and I said, yeah. He was under the law. He was under the condemnation of the law. And he rested easy in his sins. And that's the tragedy. Well, that, so that's the first thing that is clarified here in verse 19 and 20. And then uh, the second thing is clarified, and he says that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Can anything be more clear than that? Um, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You know, this is a very definitive statement. By saying no flesh means it's all inclusive, meaning no man, Jew or Gentile. Imagine how this statement shocked the sensibilities of the self-righteous religious Jew. You know, I have felt, I have had sincere brethren say to me, but Wayne, weren't the people under the old covenant justified by the law? What did you say? Were they? Was there anyone in the, in the Old Testament who was justified by the law? Paul says no. But that's a very clarifying, succinct uh, statement that's uh, given to us here in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 3. Well, tonight, um, I believe that in our passage, uh, beginning in verse 21 all the way to uh, verse 26 in Romans 3, uh, we, uh, we find that, uh, that justification by faith uh, is defined and explained and we're given the basis of our justification by faith. So uh, I'd like to read that passage. Would you stand with me as I to the reading of the, the scriptures, beginning at, uh, at verse 21 uh, all the way to verse 31. But now the righteousness of God, without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and of all all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Could he declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus? Where is boasting then? Is it, it is excluded. By what law? By what, what, by, um, by what principle? Well, of, of works? Is it? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. You may be seated. May the Lord enlighten our eyes to the wonderful truths that are found in this passage, and especially in verses 24 and 25, which will ultimately be the focus of my message this evening. Uh, I, I also 
have a, again, a handout, uh, uh, a teaching outline for this section, and if those are available, would you, uh, would you pass those out at this particular time? Uh, but notice in, in verse 21 that uh, the, uh, Paul begins by, by saying, But now, but now the righteousness of God without the Lord's manifest being witnessed to by the law and prophets. But now, verse 21, these words, the but now, indicate, again, a dynamic shift, a, 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 yes, a dynamic shift uh, of focus. With, uh, with, with but now, Paul begins, did you notice how Paul begins a long, run-on sentence? Do you know where the, where the period is? Uh, at, at, where he, but now begins the sentence, and, and the period it comes uh, uh, at the end of verse 26. Here you have one of Paul's uh, uh, noted, famous, long, run-on sentences. And if, and, and if you high schoolers would do this to your teacher uh, when you write a thesis of some kind, no doubt your teacher would send it back and say, you need to make about a half a dozen sentences out of this. Uh, but uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sort of uh, ignores some of the uh, those kind of things, and, and he has this long, extended sentence where he does uh, clause upon clause upon clause upon clause until the, he says what he wants to say to us. So here you have this long, run-on sentence uh, by which he now begins his exposition of the doctrine of our salvation, uh, and so. From chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul took on the role, as I indicated last night, it seems like he takes on the role of a prosecuting attorney, proving that all are guilty sinners under the wrath of God, that, and that all are under sin. Now, it seems to me that we can see Paul changing, as it were, in a sense, uh, his role, and now he becomes what I may call his a defense attorney, as it were, and shows how we as guilty sinners can be justified, how we can be made right with God through the redemption that is in Christ. And this long run on sentence, Paul clearly sets forth three things that I want to focus on, and I'm really going to focus most of all on the third thing, but three things that Paul sets forth here that are important to the doctrine of salvation. And the one is, the first one is, how, how he, he explains from the get-go here how a guilty sinner can be made right with God. And that's important. That's simple, but that's very straightforward, and that, but that's important. And secondly, he, he emphasizes the fact that all are made right with God in the same way. That's in the middle of this long run on sentence. And then, then he, uh, toward the end, especially in verses 24 and 25, he gives us the fundamental basis for our redemption. And that's really what I, what I want us to focus on this evening, but let me work up to it. Uh, so we sort of get a, a good overall picture of what Paul is, the Holy Spirit is, is up to here in this passage. But keep that in mind. So first of all, how a guilty sinner is made right with God, verses 21 and 22. Paul explains how, how, the, how a sinner is made right with God by declaring that the righteousness of God is acquired and conferred upon us or to us by our faith in Jesus Christ. That's just about as simple as I can put it. Four times the phrase, the righteousness of God, is referenced here in, uh, in verses 21 to 26. This is the righteousness of God that, that Paul referred to in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, when he said, For in the gospel, the, the gospel is the power of God and salvation. Remember chapter 1, verse 16. And, and, for, and therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, after it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so here, this, this is the righteousness of God that Paul said is revealed in the gospel. Romans chapter 5 is going to refer to this righteousness as a gift that is bestowed upon us in Christ. Verse 21 and 22 tell us three things about the righteousness of God. 
First of all, it is without the law, meaning apart from the law. It cannot be attained by the deeds of the law, as he said in verse 21. And secondly, he tells us, it is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, yes, he, he says that, that uh, uh, no man, no, no flesh can be justified by the law, but uh, he says it is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. The, the fact that a man is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ is witnessed to by the law and the prophets, if I could put it that in those simple terms. You see, the doctrine of justification was not a unique idea to the New Testament. It was it's also given to us in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament speaks of a righteousness that is attained or received, as Paul says here, apart from the law. Uh, for example, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 declares that the just shall live by faith, and that's the mother verse for, uh, for what Paul quoted in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And so, yes, um, the, uh, it, is, it is received by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. Uh, it is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. And uh, the righteousness of God is received, according to verse 22, by faith in Jesus Christ. It, it's stated very succinctly here. Uh, and so, uh, so but, but what is the righteousness of God that he's talking about here? What is the righteousness of God that is received by, uh, uh, by faith in Christ? Uh, well, it, it is associated with the whole concept of justification. In fact, the words righteousness and justification have the same basic word, uh, root, uh, same basic root word in, in Greek. Um, and so, it, the Hebrew word for righteousness in the Old Testament has to do, as someone has said, with a, with a relationship with God. You know, the, the Spanish translates this phrase, the righteousness of God, as la justicia de Dios. The German translates it as the erectified de for God's guilt. Now, I grew up uh, uh, reading and understanding German. I, I didn't, I don't, you know, I, I'm limited in, in the high German, uh, the, the real German, the, that, uh, uh, but I, I do understand quite a bit of it. But I, I struggled as I thought about this, uh, as it it as Martin Luther gave it, gave it uh, translated into the German, I struggled with understanding the word guilt. The gerechtigkeit before God's guilt. What does it mean, before God's guilt? What is guilt? Uh, it's not the English word guilt, <laughs> but uh, uh, so you can you for God's guilt. Well, uh, I was I was thinking about this uh, when I was teaching this a number of years ago at SBI, and uh, we had a, uh, a married man who was there from from Mexico, from the Pine Gemeinde uh, Church, and uh, the German was his his mother tongue, and so I went to him and said so. So what does it mean when it says you get anti-KID for God's guilt? What is this guilt? What does it mean? What does it mean? And he thought a little bit and he said, well, uh, the word guilt means uh, it has to do with with uh, placing value on it. It has to do with value, uh, something that that counts, uh, something that that stands secure before God. And and so so in in a, in a very real way. Um, what what the German uh, uh, phrase means is that what he's saying is that, that it's talking about the righteousness that counts. That the righteousness that is of value, the, the righteousness that is acceptable, that stands before God. And uh, I, I, I like that. Um, so Schrock's definition of right, the righteousness of God is it has to do with having, if I, if I would put it as simple as I could to someone who would be on his deathbed, uh, I would say it has to do with having a right standing with God. That's about as simple as I could put it. That's, that's sort of um, breaking through all of the theological jargon and 
that is also put upon this, this phrase. Uh, it has to do with coming into a right relationship with God. It has to do with coming into a right standing with God through the, the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of embracing the atoning work of Christ for oneself by faith. Uh, so it really has to do with coming into a right standing with God. Uh, and that's about as simple as I could put it. Uh, and uh, so this is the righteousness uh, that Paul is talking about. Uh, and this is, in essence, the, the meaning of justification as far as, as I'm concerned in, uh, as Paul gives it here in, in the book of Romans. Well, so the, the second thing that Paul emphasizes in this, in verses 22 and 23 then, is that all have to all acquire a right standing with God the same way. That's verses 22 and 23. Let me read that again. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed to by the law by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and among all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's still not a period there, but that's as far as I'm going to take that. Uh, and so, but so what he's saying here is that all are required, all acquire a right standing with God, the righteousness of God, in the same way. Uh, there are. Uh, there are two statements in verses 22 and 23 that reinforce and that affirm that, that fact. Uh, and the first statement is, for there is no difference. Notice that, that what it said. Um, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Yeah, there is no difference. This, this phrase, I... It, you know, it seems like the Holy Spirit continues to reinforce the fact that the playing field is level. And as someone said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the, in my way of saying this, the, the playing field is level. In fact, Paul has been leveling the playing field all along since chapter 1 and verse uh, 16 with the little word all. Because he says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to all them that believe. Uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, uh, one eighteen, uh, against all ungodliness. And here in, in verse nine, three in verse nine, as we noticed last night, says that uh, all are under under uh, under under sin. And now here, the righteousness of God that is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse twenty three. Now, saying it in a different way, the ground is level at the foot of cross because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the simplest uh, uh, interpretation that I can give to the intent, to what I sense is the intent here in, in, the, in, in, these, in this phrase. You see, the spiritual logic is this. Because there is logic. There is spiritual logic in what the Holy Spirit uh, transmits to us here. The spiritual logic of verse 22 and 23 is that there is no difference, there is no distinction, there is no difference, there is no exception. All must come to God in the same way, for or because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the sort of the way it's, it's put together there. You know, this in a very thoughtful way reinforces what Paul said in Romans 3, chapter 9. Chapter 3, verse 918, as we looked at it last night. That, that brutal section where he just nails us <laughs> and, and says, uh, you know, uh, there's none righteous, no, not one, and accept it. Brutal but true. And so, in a sense, he's reinforcing this. Uh, again, in, in reinforcing the sinfulness of all men. Paul doesn't seem to let us get away from the fact that sin has permeated the human personality in an all-exclusive way, and that sin affects us deeply. It really does. You can ignore God. You can ignore the commandments of God. But by doing so, you are affected deeply. 
see, so he says, all have sinned. Now, not all have sinned equally or to the same degree. That's obvious. Look at the, look, look at the pagan Gentile sinner in chapter 1 and, and the, the sinner, the religious Jew uh, who is a sinner before God. Not all have sinned. All have sinned, but not all have sinned equally or to the same degree. But all have sinned. And that's that's the, the, the force of what Paul is saying here. But can't you just hear the religious Jew saying, but I certainly don't follow Paul as far short as my pagan Gentile neighbor does. Remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 standing by himself and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even like this publican. And the publican was really uh, another Jewish person, but who, who was consorting with the Romans and being a tax collector. But he said, even, even you know, I'm, <laughs> thank you, I'm not, I'm not like this. You know, the, the Pharisee's thought, he was a cut above this publican because he did more righteous works and deeds. Paul is, uh, would, would say they were alike because they both had sinned and come toward the glory of God. That's the simplicity of it. And that, and that no idea, no, there's no difference. There's, there's no distinction here as far as God is concerned for all have sinned and come toward the glory of God. All must come the same way because all have sinned and come toward the glory of God. That's the simplicity of the statement here, and that's the context of in which this is found. So, allow me to ask you this evening: Just how much must a man sin before he falls short of the glory of God? How much? How much did Adam and Eve sin before they lost the glory? You know, as uh, one of my students said in, in relation to verse 23, and I, you know, I, I, I enjoy, I, I appreciate my students. You know, they, they occasionally teach, teach me something. Uh, they, uh, they sometimes say some profound things. <laughs> and uh, that, I, I just thoroughly enjoy that. And, but this is what one student said in relation to verse 23. He said, if you attempt to jump across the Grand Canyon, it really doesn't matter if you miss the other side by a mile or by one foot. The end result is easily tragic and easily important. Isn't that simple, but isn't that profound? <laughs> and apply it to, to what Paul is saying here. Huh? Put a different twist to it, but in essence, he said, made the same point when he said, "The harlot, the liar, the murderer, are all short of it, short of the glory of God." But so are you. <laughs> Perhaps they stand at the bottom of the valley, and you stand on top of the Alps, quite a distance in man's sight, but you are as little able to reach the stars as he is. Well, it's sort of saying the same thing. <laughs> but let me ask you this evening. Um, what does it really mean to fall short of the glory of God? Notice how the various translations have tried to capture the idea here. The old Phillips translation said, Everyone falls short of the beauty of God's plan. The old New English translation said, All are deprived of the divine splendor. I think that's pretty good. New Living says, All fall short of God's glorious standard. Well, that's a pretty good interpretation of it. The Amplified says, all fall short of the honor and glory which God bestows and receives. The Spanish says, todos están destituidos de la gloria de Dios. The German says, peace in all the solemn thunder and monument of wounds and feed by God's offering closing. Well, I ask again, what does it really mean to come short of the glory of God? Allow me to put forth that sort of two definitions of the glory of God uh, in the context of verse 23. 
one definition that I that this came to this came to light to me is to say that the glory of God has to do with the praise or the approval of God. We come short, all have sinned, and they have come short of God's praise and God's approval in your life. So sinning causes me to come short of God's approval in my life. of the, the glory of God. And then the second one is the glory of God has to do with the splendor or the outshining of God's holiness and, and the outshining of God's person. You see, the psalmist speaks of the beauty of holiness. There, you know, the world around us doesn't think that holiness is beauty, beautiful, but the psalmist said, talks about the beauty of holiness. Be very careful here, because uh, um, I want you to be a Berean and, and judge what I say. Uh, but I want to uh, say something here that that I that that seems uh, true, uh, and yet it's uh, it's not it's not that definitive in the Word of God, but. But I sense something here that, that I just want to uh, express. And so uh, hear what I have to say. I believe that, I verily believe that in their innocence, Adam and Eve, in their innocence and, and sinless condition, they experienced the glory of God in their soul, in their spirit. In other words, they are vast within themselves of the approval of God on their lives. They, they rebelled in their innocence and sinlessness. They rebelled in the approval of God. He delighted in His presence. As He came down to walk with them in the garden and talk to them. You know, they have the faintest idea of what the, the disapproval of God felt like. What guilt and condemnation was. They had never experienced it. So it's, it's my sense that not only that their hearts, but it's my sense that, that their hearts is tilted in the glory of God. But, it, but it's also my sense that they were, may I say, literally enveloped. Or maybe I should, should use the word clothed with the glory of God. What clothing did you wear in the garden? Let me ask you this. What clothing are you going to wear in heaven? Huh? Is it a, a new kind of clothing? With what will you be clothed? You say immortality. Yeah, well, yes, that's a, general, that's a good general answer. But with what will you be clothed in heaven? How were, the, were, the, were Adam and Eve clothed in the garden before they sinned? Well, the, the artists don't depict that. <laughs> I don't believe the artist. But it seems to me, I, I, like I said, I can't prove this, but it seems to me that Adam and Eve were literally enveloped and clothed and clouded in the face with the glory of God. Their bodies were covered and glowed with the glory of God. 
In other words, the, the glory of God, the outshining of God's splendor, clothes their nakedness. And I further believe that when they committed that one act of disobedience, that, that the glory departed not only from their soul, but I also believe that the visible glory that which enshrouded them was suddenly gone, and they were shocked to suddenly find themselves uncovered and naked. Can you imagine the shock? Not only what they felt on the inside, but suddenly the, 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 they were no more shrouded with the glory of God. And for the first time, for the very first time, they felt the devastating effect of guilt and condemnation. Think about this. If you want to ask my conclusion, that God will be closed in heaven. You think we'll be closed with the glory of God. Allow me that uh, that idea. <laughs> uh, it thrills me, actually. Well, now we're looking at three important truths from verse twenty-one to twenty-six that are important to the doctrine of our salvation. How guilty sinners made right with God. That's in verses twenty-one and twenty-two. And the second one is that all are made right with God in the same way. Uh, that's verses 22 and 23. And then in verses 24 and 25, we have given to us the fundamental basis of our redemption. It's, it's really this truth that I would want to dwell on as the, the main point of this message uh, this evening. And, and so I want to look at the ground and the efficacy of our redemption. By efficacy, I, I mean the, uh, the, 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 the power of this, the power of God in salvation in the power of the gospel, the efficacy, the outworking of, of that in our lives uh, in a powerful kind of way, the efficacy of our, our redemption. Here in verse 24 and 25 are given to us the ground, and I'm talking about the groundwork and, and the fundamental basis of our redemption. You, you see, we need to keep in mind that here in Romans 3, 21 and 31, Paul is laying the foundation for the doctrine of justification that he's going to talk about in chapter 4 and even in chapter 5. And verses 24 and 25, which is really sort of the heart and core of this passage, gives us the central premise upon which the truth of our salvation and the truth of the doctrine of our salvation and the truth of our justification rests. Let me read verses 24 and 25 again. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Note that these two verses contain a number of words and phrases that are rich in meaning. And as it relates to our atonement that are, that are important to our salvation in Christ, it is that being justified freely by His grace. We'll look at that further tomorrow. And then he talks about the redemption that is in Christ. I encourage you to look, look up these words and, and, and reflect on them. Redemption is the word that comes from the slave market. It means to free by payment of a ransom. Jesus talked about giving his life as a ransom for many. Redemption. And then he talks about the remission of sins that are past. This has to do with forgiveness. You, you know that that important part of, of justification is, is forgiveness. What, what would you do without forgiveness? Without forgiveness of the sins that are past? It's very definitive about that. He says the forgiveness of the sins that are past. I, want to, I would like to go out on a bit of a trail there and, and talk about that, but I'm going to leave that for now. But, but yes, what would we do without forgiveness? <laughs> but the word I, I want to camp on for a bit tonight is this word propitiation. It's found in the first part of verse 25, whom God has set forth. Jesus is talking about Jesus, who he has set, sent forth or set forth 
as a propitiation through faith in his blood. God, first of all, God knows God has set forth a propitiation. Now, to give substance to the things I want to say about the foundation of our redemption, we really need to look at the meaning of the word propitiation. You see, the word propitiation, as used here in 25, is central to our understanding of redemption. It is a word rich with meaning and derives its meaning ugly from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The, the word propitiation is used three times in the New Testament, First uh, John chapter 2, verse 2, and First John chapter uh, 4 and verse 10, uh, and, and here in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Only three times, but it's, it's a, a, a word that is, that is uh, rich with meaning, and we, we need to understand. So, so what is the meaning of propitiation? And, I, and I'm, I'm not pretending here that I fully understand all of the implications and the nuances of, of uh, this phrase, propitiation, but you might find it interesting that the German uses the word non-mutual uh, to depict the meaning of the word propitiation. Non-mutual comes from the English word mercy seat. He is our mercy seat. He is our non-steward. Uh, to propitiate means to do something that will conciliate, that will reconcile an alienated relationship. Yes, it has within itself, if you, if, if depending on the context uh, in which it is used, it has the idea of placating, but, but it's not the main idea of propitiation. I want us to, to understand that. Uh, so the main idea of propitiation, I believe, has to, has to do with making satisfaction for something. And, and so, um, from the Old Testament perspective, it means to make atonement, to reconcile the sin of the God, which is what happened when the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And this is no doubt why Martin Luther translated the word propitiation as not in here. Uh, but the fact that God set forth Jesus as a propitiation means that God set forth Jesus as a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, a, a sin sacrifice that somehow, somehow, and I don't really totally understand that, but it somehow it satisfies the holy justice of God so that my sins and my guilt could be what Peter calls, talks about in Acts 3.19, could be blotted out. See, all this is reinforced by 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 27, where it says, For he has made him to be sent for us to mean of sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, we need to be careful. This does not mean that Jesus is being sinful for our sake that some, some, some would interpret that to mean. But it does mean, and as I understand the, the, uh, the transliteration of this, it does mean that, that he became our sin bearer. He became our sin sacrifice. He became, in other words, our propitiation. So think sin sacrifice. Think sin bearer. He bore our sins. And he made, he made satisfaction with, the, with God the Father for our sins. Through his through atoning, through the atonement, through, through his death, through, his, through three things, through, through his suffering, his death, and his shedding of his blood, and through the resurrection. Again, I say this does not mean that Jesus became sinful on the cross, but it does mean that He became our sin sacrifice. And you keep that in mind. That is a, a basic concept that that comes through in the whole concept of, of our, Him being our propitiation. You see that the sin of man required a propitiatory sacrifice. It required an atoning sacrifice in the economy of God. Allow me to reflect a bit on this idea of, of, of the, that, that reinforces the idea of the, the necessity of a, of, of a propitiatory sacrifice. 
You see, God could not just overlook sin. He could not overlook sin. There had to be a premise, a fundamental basis for redemption, for the forgiveness of sin. God could not just come to Adam and Eve and say, look, I'm very upset with you for your sin, for your disobedience, sin, wrath of God. But because I love you, I will drop on my grace and I will look what you did and we'll start over. He couldn't do that. Because this is a moral universe. No, atonement has to be made. The justice of God has to be fully satisfied. I, 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 like, I like the idea of satisfaction. So yes, satisfaction has to be made. A Redeemer has to make redemption so sinful man could be reconciled to Holy God. There has to be a day when that Job said it in, in Job chapter 9, verse 33. In other words, a mediator, a go-between, one who could lay his hand on Holy God, one could lay his hand on sinful man and bring them back together. I'm saying it very carefully. I, 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 I thought a lot about this. And so I'm, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it very carefully. Do you judge what I say? Because uh, uh, this is, yeah, well, just think about it. God could not bring about our salvation, our justification, by the power of this word. By the word of his power, it says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, he created all things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and Colossians 1, 16. By the word of his power, he upholds all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, meaning that, that he holds the sun in, in, in its place, the moon in its place, the stars in their place. Everything has its orbit, but they're held in place by the power of God, by the power of his word. You see, by the word of his power, he healed the leper. He opened the eyes of the blind. By the word of his spoken word, he filled the storm that night out there in the Sea of Galilee when disciples woke him up. He was sleeping on the back end of the boat, and, and the sea was rough, and there was, the boat was filling up with water. And he said, Master, you know, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus got up on the back of that boat, and I don't know if you ever tried to stand on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a windy night on a lake. But uh, he stood on the back of that boat, wept the sleep out of his eyes, and said, Hush! Still! By the word of his power! One of the ones who was way when. By the word of his power, he set men free from demons. One day, Jesus stood by the grave with his friend Lazarus. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. And after a short prayer, he said, he said, he said, he said, he said it in a loud voice. He said, what? Come on out. Come on. Suddenly, in that tomb, in that cave-like structure in the opening, here comes Lazarus bound. And great clothes, shuffling out, that <laughs> loosen and let him go. You know how he did that? It was by the, it was by the power of his spoken word. He raised the dead. But and so, but when it came to your salvation and mine. Jesus could not redeem us by the power of his spoken word. But he had to. He had to uh, come down from heaven. 
He had to suffer and die. He, he had to go to the cross. He had to be nailed to the cross. He could not do it with a spoken word. But he could only do it with his suffering, death, and the shedding of his blood. That's the way he atoned for our sins. You see, after the resurrection, Jesus, in the last chapter of Luke, I believe you'll find this, he, he, he met his, his disciples. He, 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 he visited his disciples. I believe it was the evening of the resurrection. And Jesus explained to them, uh, and he said, Thus, and here's the words, it's the King James, Thus it behooves the Son of Man that he to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. What does the word behooves here mean? And he checked it out. Well, the interesting thing is that the word behoove is a very strong word meaning calling for the necessity of something. Something was absolutely necessary. And so, so he was saying that, that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to suffer to bring about our redemption. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die in the cross to spill his blood for our redemption. Yes, it was necessary. What's an only problem? It was necessary. That's the force of that word. So when it came to bringing about our salvation, when it came to bringing about our redemption, I say again, he, he did not do it by the word of his power. He had to come. He had to take on humanity. He had to suffer and die and shed his blood to redeem us from our sins and reconcile us back to God. Well, I, I rejoice in the reality of that this evening. I trust you do too. But that's the, the, the force of the, 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 what Paul is saying here when he says, God set forth Jesus as a propitiatory sacrifice. Now, I'd like for you to turn just briefly to Colossians uh, chapter 2 uh, and verse 14 and 15. I just want to reinforce uh, the, the truth of some of this as it's given here in Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verses 13, 14, and 15. You know, there was a time that I struggled deeply with the assurance of my salvation, and, and uh, I. Uh, but here in uh, Colossians chapter two, uh, Jesus uh, said something in verse thirteen that that really uh, spoke to me. In the last phrase, he says, uh, uh, "Well, he said in verse thirteen, he said, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has it quickened together with him.'" Having forgiven you all trespasses. All trespasses. You know, I, I glory in the reality of that. All my sins in the past. But then he goes on to say this, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What is Paul saying here in Colossians chapter 2, especially in verse 14? Well, this is, it tells us what happened when Jesus became our sin sacrifice, our propitiation on the cross. On you know, the cross of Golgotha, when Jesus cried about the third, uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, when he cried in a deep agony and said, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" And then a few moments later, he, he cried out with a loud voice again. It tells us, and and and, uh, uh, and, and he cried out and said, "It is finished. Uh, it's uh, the uh, it's uh, it's 
pagan fool. Yes, he spoke those wonderful words. But here in Paul, here in Colossians 2.14, it says that he was making atonement. He he blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. Now, the word ordinances that was against us is another way of expressing an indictment. The indictment that stood against us. Do you understand that, that Jesus had an indictment that, that was nailed over the top of Jesus' head and said that and, and Jesus died for, uh, for high treason. He died because they, they perceived, they thought that he died because he, he uh, made himself king instead of as far as the Roman government was concerned instead of Caesar. And so that's, that's he died for high treason. Uh, because because of that, but you know, uh, so that was Jesus' indictment. But here, it, Paul is saying there seems to be another indictment that was nailed to the cross. It wasn't Jesus' indictment. That was a perversity of justice. But as far as, as man is concerned, but there was another indictment that he took to the cross. What Paul is saying seems to be saying here, and it wasn't his indictment. It was your indictment and mine. Your charge. The sin that stood against you again before holy God, the charge of your sins, your disobediences, that was the indictment that Jesus took to the cross, and he nailed it to the cross, and by doing that, he took it out of the way. You rejoice in the fact that the indictment of our sins, guilty before God, was taken out of the way. Do you understand not only how beloved you are, God, but how free you are in Christ? You know, uh, well, The basis of our justification is the redemption that is in Christ, whom God has set forth as the propitiation for the remission of our sins. The provision of our justification is God's grace, and the acquirement of our justification is by faith in His blood. Uh, this is sort of the, the, the content of Romans 23, 24, and 25. Now, there are four uh, ramifications it gives us in verses 26 to 31 uh, as a result of this. And, and, and so the one ramification, the one result is that it enables God to be both just and the justifier. Secondly, it, it eliminates both in verses 27 and 28. Thirdly, it makes salvation available to all because nobody could earn it and so uh, all have to receive it by, by grace. So it makes it available to all. It makes it a free gift. Every, everyone can receive a gift. One doesn't merit a gift. You just read out, reach out and embrace it and say, thank you. Sometimes it's difficult for me to, to receive gifts from people. But I've learned to just not say anything except say thank you. So we make salvation available to all. And the third thing, you don't miss this. The fourth thing, you don't miss this. It says it establishes the law. You know, we, we weren't justified by the law, but, but the redemption of Christ makes it possible then for us to go on and establish the law. You know, see, sometimes we get a little bit uncomfortable with Paul's emphasis on being made right with God by faith without the deeds of the law. We're afraid of what it, <laughs> what, what it might make us do. Live a, a lawless life. That, that's, not, that's not the way it is. Somehow, we, we are afraid that it will set us adrift from our moral moorings and will, will cause us to live a lawless kind of life. But here Paul reinforces the fact that justification by faith through grace doesn't void or cut us loose from the law. It actually establishes the law. In other words, it enables us to fulfill the righteousness of the law. And we're going to see that when we come again. As we come to, to Romans chapter 8, we'll see this morning. God bless you uh, to absorb uh, these uh, wonderful truths that we have in relation to our redemption in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 21 to verse 31. May God bless you.
season richly. But let me just say this. You know, I, uh, I, I want, I, I, you know, what I desire to see in, in, a, in, a, in a service like this, in a group like this, if there are spiritual needs, and anybody has a spiritual need, uh, you, will, you will feel free to just tap somebody, some brother on the shoulder, and pull him aside and say, you know, I'm struggling with this. I, I, I would just love to see that, that happen in our years. You know, and having that kind of freedom. So, so take the freedom to do that. If you're troubled here tonight and you, you doubt your salvation, uh, tap a brother or a sister on the shoulder and ask them to pray for you. You will be blessed if you do that. Would you stand with me? Do you, do you know? Do you know that um, the uh, the song is not in your phone book? You know the song, Jesus Christ has made for me all I need, all I need. Let's, let's, let's sing the rest of that, shall we? Jesus Christ has made to me all I need, all I need. He alone is all my plea, He is all I need. With some righteousness and power, holiness forevermore, my redemption for the sure. He's the treasure of my soul, all I need, all I need. He has cleansed and made me whole, He is all I need. Wisdom, righteousness, and power, holiness forevermore, my redemption full and sure, He is all I need. May he be your all in all. As we go Lord, I want to thank you for this gathering of your people, your saints, those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, redeemed beyond their wildest imagination. Lord, I pray that the truth of what you did on the cross of Calvary by being set forth as our propitiation might be. Might be driven home into our hearts in a new and a fresh way. Lord, that you might establish us in our faith and in our walk with you. Lord, you won't set us adrift, but you will establish us. And we just want to thank you for that tonight. And I, I pray that uh, this truth might be indelibly impressed upon our hearts and minds. Dismiss us with your blessing and go with us. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.